Our Father, we are blessed to be the people of God, to be the chosen ones who have become a part of that great family that began clear back thousands of years ago as you fell up shipped with Adam and Eve in the garden and uh, through the thousands of years since that time. You have walked and talked with your people, primarily through your word. And Father, we know you're here this morning in our midst, where two or three are gathered in your name. There are you in the midst. And so, Father, we ask that your spirit will be our teacher, that he will open our minds and hearts to truth, that we will be able to not only hear the truth, but apply it to our lives and live according to the precepts of the Word of God. We ask God that you will be with this Sunday school in every class this morning, from the cradle roll to the senior citizens, and that you will bring about your perfect plan and purpose, and with the service as it is also transpiring this hour. And we'll thank you for what you do in Christ's name. Amen. Again, if you will turn to Exodus chapter 20. We have been looking at the life of Moses. And God has brought Moses to this literal high point of his career. Not only in the fact that he would be God's spokesman for the word of God, but he is literally on the top of a mountain. This is a mountaintop experience, literally that Moses is having. As I think about this, you know, I don't know what Moses' reaction was in the whole situation, but can you imagine what God must have done to heighten, heighten this man's awareness of, of what God was doing? I, I know some of us can sit through a class like this or sit in the service and you're kind of, you know, we're half in and we're half out and <laughs> we're kind of on the edge here and we're, we're thinking about something else from time to time or the squirrel that's bouncing through the trees or whatever it happens to be. <coughs> and, and that's a normal, a normal condition. But I don't think Moses had anything else on his mind <laughs> while he was up there on the mountain. And I think as God spoke to him, he had an acute awareness as he had never had before in his life of what God was saying and, and of course who the person of God was. Moses will yet experience God in, uh, in further encounters. You and I never come to the place at any point in our life where we understand God as best as we're going to understand God because he continues to work with us. Uh, as long as we have life and breath, God is working with us to bring us to a deeper understanding of his nature and, and a greater understanding of what he wants us to be in response to that because each one of us has a role to play here. We're not just living out a life because we're part of a drama. Uh, we're living here because God has chosen to put us in this place at this time to do this thing. God can do whatever God chooses to do with us or without us, but he has chosen to do it with us. That's just his choice. And therefore, what we learn even from studying the Ten Commandments is, I think, very helpful in understanding more of the nature of God and what he wants us to do and to be. So let me again read these verses, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 20. Then God spoke all of these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Therefore you shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands and to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed, and blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his donkey or his ox or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. We have focused on the first commandment and dealt with what all is meant by having no other God before the Lord. We looked at the commandments relative to keeping the name of the Lord honest and pure and good, not using it in vain. Last week we looked at the Sabbath and what all that meant then and what it might mean today. Today we're going to look at the commandment which says that we are to honor our fathers and our mothers. The first four commandments, which we have already looked at, deal specifically with mankind's relationship with God. And the last commandments deal with what that relationship should mean with its impact on human society. The fifth commandment, honor your father and your mother, deals with the most basic of all human relationships. There is no more basic relationship than the child with that of his parents. Obviously, the child was part of his mother for nine months and, and then is born. And, and, and that intimate relationship is the first relationship that any particular person knows as far as human society goes. The word translated honor in this uh, particular passage literally means weighty. Weighty as in the sense of an important person in society. We're, we're to give weight to our parents in, in our view of them relative to all other persons in society. It refers to a person who is worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. In case of one's parents, and all of us have had parents. Now we may not have had parents, that stuck with us the whole time, but all of us have had parents. They are worthy of a child's respect simply because of the position that God has chosen to give them as the parents. And the basic idea in this commandment is that we're to greatly respect 
those who are representative of God in our lives. Whether or not those individuals personally honor God. Many of you probably had parents who didn't know the Lord, did not honor the Lord, yet the commandment does not give a qualifier. It doesn't say you respect your parents if they know the Lord and truly reflect the Lord in your life, but if they don't, you don't have to. It doesn't say that at all. It's a flat-out blanket statement to honor one's parents, one's mother and one's father, irrespective of anything else. Now, the reason for this, I think, is because it's pretty rare that an individual who will not respect his parents, that that person will respect God. Pretty rare. Generally speaking, and, and many Christian psychologists have pointed this out today, that if a person has no respect for his father, the chances of him having real respect for God are pretty small for his heavenly father. That's not an impossibility, but it's not a likelihood for such respect to exist. Because there is a tendency of transference there, of one's respect for one's father to transfer that to God, or at least to reflect that on God. And if there is no respect for the father, there is probably not going to be much respect for God. Uh, in Leviticus 19, we won't turn to it, but in Leviticus 19.3, we read this, Every one of you shall reverence his father and his mother, and you shall keep the Sabbaths. Why? Because I, the Lord, am your God. It's interesting that uh, God often doesn't explain the details we might like to have. But God, why should I respect my father and my mother? Why should I reverence them? And his only answer is because I'm God and I said so. We find that honoring father and mother is on par with keeping the Sabbath. And do you remember what we read last week about the Sabbath? The one who does not honor the Sabbath was to be executed. Whoops. <laughs> Pretty strong language. And here, honoring one's father and mother is put on par with keeping the Sabbath. In this particular passage in Leviticus, the word honor is replaced with the word reverence. And reverence literally means here to hold in fear or awe. There is a way, there is an element to which our parents should be held in awe. Now, of course, we live in a day and age where everything is awesome today, you know. <laughs> oh, that bird is awesome. It's just a plain old ordinary bird, you know, but we wear the word out, or I should say the younger generation tends to wear the word out. But, but there is a measure in which our parents should be held in awe because the parent stands in the place of God in many ways. It was... God who chose this whole plan of having parents. Uh, but God could have chose a lot of different ways to reproduce the human race, but this is the plan he chose. And God wants us to follow this plan in terms of our respect, our honor, our reverence for parents. In the book of 1 Kings, in the second chapter, we read that Bathsheba went before her son, who was king of all Israel, and his name was Solomon. And she went before him to make a request. And the scripture tells us, And the king arose to meet her, 
and he bowed before her, and he had a, son, a throne set up be, uh, for her, and she sat at his right hand. He is the king, the king of the whole land. Solomon controlled more territory as king of Israel than any other Israelite king has in the history of Israel. He was more wealthy and more powerful than any other king in the history of Israel. And yet when his mother walked in, he rose from his throne, went down and bowed in front of her and sat her down at his right hand, showing great deference, great respect, great reverence for his mother. You know, he could have had another attitude towards her because, as you well know, she was involved in sin with his father and he could have treated her as something less than an honorable woman but he did not. And as we read about some of the things that Bathsheba says and does, we might think, well, you know, she wasn't exactly your paragon of virtue even afterwards. And, and some of the decisions she made were a little bit foolish, probably. And yet this man holds her in great awe and respect because she is his mother. I think like Solomon we are to honor and to reverence our parents in our hearts, in our words, and in our deeds. I think even if our parents do not know the Lord, that that's one of the most powerful ways that we can make a statement of who God is in our lives and reflect to them their own need of the Lord. What's interesting is what Scripture does with this. By extension, similar honor to that of parents is to be accorded the guardians of our society and faith. In Leviticus 19, we read this, You shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God. Reverence for parents was also to extend to reverence for the elders of society the elders of the church, if it were, as it might be. Because this was to directly reflect, reflect reverence to God. One, one of the hardest uh, issues to deal with is the issue of personal pride. And every one of us has to deal with that in our lives. We, we never really are totally freed from it, I don't think, through our life. But the, the issue of giving respect to others is a big issue. Because if we do not respect those who are in leadership positions of our society or let's say of our church, do we really respect God then? I, th I think our, our modern society, of course, has this big problem with lack of respect. And we might argue, well, those people in leadership don't deserve any respect. Well, you know, whatever that might be, uh, God has ordained respect. And whether they are worthy of respect, that becomes their problem, not ours. Ours is to offer the respect that is, um, is due according to, to Scripture. That doesn't, of course, mean we grovel. It doesn't mean we support improper actions or attitudes or laws or anything else. But it does mean that we offer respect to those persons to whom God says respect is due. As you turn to the New Testament, of course, the Scripture teaches us we're to honor those who are in authority over us, kings and governors and whatever they might be. 
As we study the books of Exodus, and we'll be looking more and more at Leviticus and Deuteronomy as we proceed with the study of the life of Moses here, we're going to find that there were other ordinances given that augment the Ten Commandments, that sort of uh, explain them or, or expand upon them. And one example is just in the next chapter here in Exodus, which relates specifically to this commandment of honoring one's father and one's mother. Because in chapter 21 of Exodus, verse 15, we read this, He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. And then down in uh, verse 17, He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Now certainly, we understand that in the New Testament, these specific laws have not been carried over in the sense that if someone were to strike his father, that automatically meant he was to be executed. But the principle has never been removed. The principle has never been removed. The laws of the Old Testament uh, were given to bring order to a particular society. And, and to create a, a sense of respect for God above and, and what he had ordained as to how society should function. And the principles are still true. Although if we were to go up and slug our father, Lord prohibit that, but you know, uh, we would not be executed in our society, but we have still violated the principles of God in doing so, in showing no respect for this particular person, and in cursing a father or a mother. That did not, in the days of Jesus, produce an uh, execution sentence, and I don't think the New Testament supports the concept of execution for such an activity. But the principle is still there. The principle of respect and honor for one's father and one's mother. And I think that although there might not be an execution for violation of that, one is killing one's own heart when one does that. One's breaking one's relationship with God if one does that. And, and God always is dealing with the ultimate principles because it's our relationship to God that ultimately matters. All these other relationships are established and, and guided for that ultimate relationship to be right. I mean, yes, God established these laws so that society could function day after day, week after week, month after month, with some kind of order, and anarchy could be prevented. But there is an ultimate goal, an, open, uh, an ultimate result of these attitudes and actions. And if we walk in obedience to these commands, it's not just that we will have an orderly society today, it's that we will be in right standing before God one day when it's all over for us individually in this life. And I think what, of course, we need to constantly remind ourselves, and uh, certainly the people who received the Ten Commandments needed to be reminded too, was the fact that this life is very short. And for any of us, it could be over tomorrow. And then we stand before God and we face all eternity, which is forever. And how many people have stood before God and thought, oh, no, if I had only looked at life differently, it's all gone. 
and now I stand eternally condemned before God. Jesus used this particular commandment to highlight the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Their pride and their selfishness was such that they tried to use God as an excuse. Use God as an excuse not to obey the commandments that God has given. And you know, this is the history of the church. Look at it in detail. Study the history of the church. And how many times has the church issued a commandment or an order? I'm talking about the established church, whatever it happens to be. And for most of European history, it's been the Roman Catholic Church. But even later, it became the Lutheran Church. It became the Calvinist Church, whatever it happened to be. And the church often will establish a rule that runs contrary to the express statement of Scripture. So, I mean, the, quote, church has been at fault at times of doing exactly the same things the Pharisees did. Let's look at Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, beginning at the first verse. Now some Pharisees and scribes came to, Jer- to Jesus from Jerusalem, saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. And he answered and said to them, Why do you yourselves transgress the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, Whoever shall say to his father or his mother, Anything of mine you might have been helped by has been given to God. He is not to honor his father or his mother. Thus you invalidated the word of God for the sake of your tradition, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. And that last phrase from Isaiah is so important in understanding church history. So much of what the church has tried to force on its people is human tradition. It's the precepts of men. It is not the law of God. And sometimes what, de- what, what uh, causes a break between one denomination and another, one group and another, is not the Word of God. It's some kind of human tradition relative to it. And we say, you aren't real Christians because when you baptize, you don't get the person all wet. Or some other thing like that, you know. And, and, and to me... <sighs> You know, that that violates the very principle of what God is teaching throughout Scripture. God is not concerned. uh, God is concerned with the heart and the obedient act and is not concerned with the way we interpret these details and what we try to make as a difference between this group and that group because of some way we interpret the particular act or the action whether it be communion or whatever it is. You know, some people say, well, the communion can be only be given in one kind. Others say it's in two kinds. Others say, well, communion is only spiritual, so we never really actually have a communion service. We just think it in our minds or some other thing. And because of that, we, we create rifts between groups of people. 
When the scripture clearly teaches us that love of the brethren is the most common characteristic that should unite the church. See how they love one another, regardless of their differences in interpretations of peripheral points. As long as they, what, what did Jesus said? How, how do we inherit to eternal life? You must be born again. Now, we have to agree on that because that's the absolute root that's where it is. We are either born again or we're not born again. We're either in the kingdom or not in the kingdom. But if we're born again, then it doesn't really matter beyond that whether we believe in the, quote, baptism of the Holy Spirit meaning this or the baptism of the Holy Spirit meaning that. That, that should not cause rifts in the church. I mean, people want to go a certain way and, and join with others who believe that way. That's fine. But don't hold themselves up as the church and everybody else is outside of the church. And I think God looks down with great pain on the church in the world today and, and looking at, at the lack of respect that groups have for one another in their basic faith in Jesus Christ, creating great walls between them because of interpretations. From I mean, you can take Scripture to prove this and you can take Scripture to prove that if you want to take it out of context and if you want to distort it. And, and so people do. And so we have this, we have a, a terrible uh, situation that racks the church because of this. And it has to do with this very pharisaical thing here. You set aside the law of God for the tradition of men. The tradition of men. Paul reiterated and elaborated this commandment in Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Paul pointed out here that this is the first commandment that contains a promise, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. There are two aspects to this promise. One is that as long as Israel had an upcoming generation that was respectful of its parents, respectful of its elders, obedient to the law of God, then Israel could be assured of continued existence in the promised land in peace. Secondly, there was a promise of long life to the individual who kept the commandment. Now, this commandment is reiterated in many places, and one of the reiterations is in Deuteronomy 5, where we read this, that it may go well with you in the land. In other words, not only we have a long life, but it will go well with you in the land. <coughs> so the promise is not, you're just going to have a long, long life. Of course, it may be miserable, but it's going to be long. No, it'll be a long, good life. A long, good life. You know, when you read the life of Abraham, about the life of Moses, and, and you know, the scripture indicates that they lived life to the full. And they died at a ripe old age, uh, having lived a good life. And that's really in, contained within this, within this particular promise. Well, the spiritual application of all of this, I think, is, is quite clear. To obey this commandment, along with all of the other commandments, of course, to obey this commandment 
in its broadest understanding, is to be an obedient child of God. It is to be an obedient child of God. It's to be a person who displays respect. What is it? Rod, Rod, Rodney Dangerfield or whatever it is who always complains about getting no respect. You and I are to be respectful people. We're to accord respect to those to whom respect is due. First of all, to our parents, and then to the elders of our society and of our church, to those whose lives have exemplified what God has done. They are to be accorded respect because that demonstrates that we are a respectful people, and that we've learned to respect the Almighty, and that that respect we have for Him carries over into life and to those around us and those to whom God has said respect is due. And that means that, therefore, we are true inheritors of the eternal promised land because we are reflecting the nature of God, the very nature of God Himself. People who do not show respect to their parents or to others to whom it is due are simply demonstrating their own arrogance and pride. That's where the root is at. It's in pride and arrogance. The fifth commandment that uh, we've just read, honor your father and your mother, marks a transition of thought here in the um, commandments. Commandments one through four focus on the person of God himself. This particular commandment focuses on those persons who represent the majesty and the authority of God in life. The very first authority figure in my life was my mother and my father. I had the blessing, of course, of having a mother and a father who stayed together. It wasn't always peaceful at home, but they stayed together. I know not all have been blessed with that in their lives. But that does not excuse us from, re from becoming respectful people and respecting those people who belong in those places of honor and of reverence, beginning with our parents and then moving into the elders of our, of our church, of our, of our society. The commandments 6 through 10 focus on the sacredness of those creatures that God made in his own image. In other words, why shouldn't we murder? Why shouldn't we commit adultery? Why shouldn't we steal? Well, the real basic root answer to it all is because we're violating the image of God, which was created in us and created in them. And it's a sacred image. And therefore, these things simply do not fit with the truth of God. Let's read, uh, go back uh, to Exodus 20 again and look at uh, verse 13. It's a short verse, four words, you shall not murder. This is the sixth commandment that God gave. This commandment and the following four that come after that are summed up in a statement in Leviticus 19 where we read, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now we know what Jesus said, right? Let's look at what Jesus said. Mark chapter 12, 
verse 28. Jesus was asked to give the essence of the law, and so he does. And in chapter 12 of Mark, beginning at verse 28, we read these words. And one of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, he asked him, that is Jesus, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. That sums up the ten in one brief statement. And if we've ever arrived in that place where we think, boy, you know, I've really got this Christian life solved. I know how to live it. And I'm doing well with it. All we have to do is turn to verse 30 there, and it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And if we can read that verse and say, I've done all that, I think we need to put the dipstick down again. I think we'll find we're a few quarts low. <laughs> what does it mean to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind? Can we love the Lord of God with all our mind and sit and vegetate and watch some of the things we may watch <laughs> on television? I, I think most of us have a long ways to go yet in, in learning what this really means. So life still has quite a challenge out there, I think, for us. But, but what does it mean when in Deuteronomy and, and then Jesus reiterating it here in Mark says that we're to love one's neighbor as oneself? What does that mean? Well, I think certainly at the very least, it means that we don't murder our neighbor, that we don't commit adultery with our neighbor, that we don't steal from our neighbor, that we don't bear false witness against our neighbor, and that we don't covet our neighbor's possession. This means that Christians cannot live the keep up with the Joneses life. Because obviously if you live the keep up with the Joneses life, you're jealous of the Joneses. Because they have gotten something you don't have. Uh-oh, now I've got to do one better than the Joneses. That is not the Christian life. Because that's covetousness. But you know, I think it goes beyond not just committing these overt acts, but I think that it means that we flee from even the desire. We flee from even the desire. And, and Jesus, of course, spoke to this, and we all remember it well, but... Let's turn to Matthew 5 anyway. You know, it's real easy to live by a set of laws. Chunk, 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 chunk. We could go, ch -ch -ch. I didn't do that today. I did not kill anybody today. <laughs> you know, I didn't commit adultery with anybody today. Jesus comes along and spoils it all. Because in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, let's look at verse 21 and 22 to start with. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, 
shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever shall say, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Whoops. Verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And then verse 43. You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? If you greet your brothers only, what do you more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a goal, of course. But what's the purpose of these statements where he says, if you greet your brothers only, what do you do more than others? The implication is that as believers, we're supposed to do more than others. We're, we're we do things, if for no other reason, to purposely exemplify the fact that we are different, that we are the children of the king. So we do it for the purpose of a testimony. And hopefully we do it honestly. But you know, even if we can't do it honestly to start with, we do it. And as time passes, it becomes honest in our heart. You know, it might really be hard for a particular person to have respect for his father because his father was a drunk. But if a person practices giving to that person respect, in spite of that, God will use that tool as a wedge to drive into the heart of that drunken father. And one day, with a lot of prayer, that man will be awakened. And not only that, others will say, well, this is a truly good, good man because he even gives respect to this man who deserves no respect. That makes you different. That makes a person different. I mean, anybody can curse his father who's, who's been a drunk all of his life and blame his father for anything. Anybody can do that. The world does. It's full of that. But if we don't do that, and if we're different, then we are a child of the king. We reflect who God really is. And we're in the process of becoming perfected, even as our Heavenly Father is perfect. You and I will never be perfect in this life, even though there are, again, to pick on the denominations, but which will not be named. Um, there are denominations who think you can become perfect in this life. Well, I have a real struggle with getting to the place they must be, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> but, of course, if you redefine sin, which is what they do, uh, you can become perfect just by calling sin a slight mistake or a little deviation, you know, no, no big deal. Kind of the white lie approach to things. But if we openly, honestly look at what life is really about and who we are and who God is, I don't think we can make up, manufacture, or produce camouflage is for what real sin is and how far we need to go. Honesty before God is great, great virtue and of course is absolutely necessary for our own well-being. In this passage in Matthew, Jesus is saying that it isn't just the overt act, it's the heart attitude. 
I might not actually drive a dagger into the back of that person, but if I think in my heart I'd sure like to, and, and I don't, that's, of course, for his sake, that's good. But in my own heart, it's no different. It's no different. The same way with adultery, in the same way with hating your enemy. You know, Jesus really asks some extreme things here because he says, what does loving your neighbor really mean? It means that we love our enemy and that we pray for those who persecute us. I mean, the last time somebody really did me or you a bad turn was our immediate response to pray for that person? Or was it to think some pretty bad thoughts about that individual? There, there are a lot of hurt persons within the church because, sure, someone else may have done them wrong, but, hey, it's our responsibility before God and how we respond to that, not theirs. They may be guilty before God for what they did to you or to me, but how I respond is my responsibility, not theirs. And Jesus says we're to pray for those who persecute us, for those who have sought to do us harm, we're to pray for them. It's real hard. Well, you know, we could pray some prayer like, God, may they drop dead. That's not the kind of prayer God's talking about here. We pray for their good, for their well-being, that God will deal, of course, with whatever is the need in their heart. But, you know, if you really pray for someone, it's real hard to hate them. It's real hard to hate somebody you're really praying for. God will build love in your heart even though you don't want it there. I want to hate this person because what they did to me. But if you really pray for them, God will turn that hatred into love, and then he uses that love, of course, to break down the barrier and probably to change that other person. Are we willing to be used in that way? Well, we didn't get a chance to really talk about this uh, commandment very much. We'll do that next week because there have been some very serious misinterpretations of this commandment partly because of the King James Version of the Bible. We'll, we'll look at that next week and, and see what is really meant here.